Absolutely nothing went right for the Seahawks on either side of the football yesterday, but particularly on offense, which has been a struggle with consistency and underperforming all year. What is going on with Geno Smith and company? And are they truly on the hot seat? We're going to be breaking it all down on our latest Monday edition of Locked on Seahawks. You are locked on Seahawks. Your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast, your daily Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Glad to be joined, as always, by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang, and a special thanks to each and every one of the 12s out there, whether you're listening in nearby Redmond or in Atlantic City, New Jersey. We greatly appreciate each and every one of you that makes Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. It's a misery Monday, a very miserable Monday here for our Monday musings. We're going to be taking some in-depth takeaways out of yesterday's 37-3 loss to the Ravens. We'll be answering your mailbag questions and much more in a jam-packed Monday episode, which is brought to you by our friends at LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash NFL. That's linkedin.com slash NFL to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Now for your lead story here on our Monday edition of Locked on Seahawks. Going into the 2023 season, expectations were sky high for the Seahawks on offense. Geno Smith coming off of his first Pro Bowl season, new contract in hand. Jackson Smith and Jigba joining DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. An improving young offensive line with new pieces in the middle. This looked to be an offense that was going to be a top three, top five caliber unit. And yet here we are now, Rob, coming out of this ugly 37 to three loss to the Ravens. And the Seahawks are 17th in the NFL in points per game. They're 30th in third down rate. They're 25th in first downs and they're 21st in red zone touchdown percentage. We could talk about a bunch of other stats out there, but when you're looking at this offense as a whole right now, it's just not very good. That's the blunt, honest truth. And the Ravens yesterday, they deserve a lot of credit. That is an outstanding defense, and they played a role in this struggle in Baltimore. But nonetheless, this has been a unit that has been marred by inconsistency. It's been marred by underperformance. Not all of this belongs on Geno Swiss plate, not all of it on the offensive line, not all of it on Shane Waldron, but really everybody deserves a share of the blame. And at this point, even though Seahawks are five and three, they're still tied for first place, Rob. It does feel like at this stage of the season, with the lack of performance we've seen from this group meeting expectations, that they truly are on the hot seat now, heading into the toughest stretch of the Seahawks schedule coming up. Well, I think they just wrapped up part of the toughest stretch of the uh, of who they're going to be facing, um, at least from an offensive side of of the ball. Um, you know, again, I, I think that there is a lot to be said about the Cleveland Browns two weeks ago, and then the Baltimore Ravens, especially on the road, Corbin. That I think that has definitely uh, been a huge 
reason why the Seahawks offensive numbers are as ugly as they are. I think that the fact that the offensive line is, you know, continuing to kind of have some, some miss and match and, and try to change things up and, and just kind of deal with the injuries that they have sustained over the course of the season. I think that plays a significant part of that, but you're absolutely right. Uh, it was something that we talked about so much, you know, heading into the seasons, the expectations now were going to be sky high. You know, th- this is not a year ago where you had this starter and Geno Smith who, who won the job over Drew Locke. And, you know, and everybody was kind of expecting the Seahawks to basically finish the season at five and 11 or, or something of that nature. I mean, this, this is the team, of course, that went to the playoffs and now there were Super Bowl aspirations. And, you know, I, I'll call myself out. I thought that this is going to be kind of a mono e mono type of a game against the Baltimore Ravens to get beat 37 to three. To, to get have one uh, first down conversion of or one first down off of 12 opportunities. So one out of 12 on third downs. I mean, it's absolutely horrific type of numbers. So, yes, I think that there is awful lot of people on the offensive side of the ball in particular who will have to be consider themselves to be on the hot seat. Now, does that mean that I think that Drew Locke should be the new starting quarterback that that Shane Waldron should be looking on LinkedIn for a, a new job or whatever the case might be no i think that the cx kind of go go back to the drawing board a little bit um, but definitely they have to be on the drawing board right now especially on offense because it truly was offensive with the way that they played against the baltimore ravens unless you've been hiding under a rock you've been seeing all the backup quarterback noise that has been out there the last several weeks and the fact is, Geno Smith has eight turnovers now in the last four games. This is a real problem. And I asked Pete Carroll about this after the game. Where's your concern level at right now with the turnovers? And obviously, he is concerned at this point. This is not what he wants to see from his offense. He has always prioritized protecting the football. And yet, that is not what we are seeing. And coming out of yesterday's game, I felt like this was a really poor performance by Geno Smith. It was the first time in his starting career with the Seahawks that he completed less than 50% of his passes. And there were some clear misses. The touchdown that should have been to Metcalf after his 50-yard catch in the end zone, and it was short-hopped to him by Geno Smith. That was one throw that jumped out. There were a couple others that just got away from him. The interception that he threw to Geno Stone That ball was overthrown by several yards. At the same time, though, there was a communication issue, a clear communication issue there that really set that play up to fail from the beginning. And going back and getting a chance to finally watch the All-22 this afternoon, Geno Smith deserves some of the blame. He is not playing well, anywhere close to the level that he played last year. But my goodness, I had a 54% pressure rate in this game. And that's a credit to the Ravens. They were generating that pressure. But I'm not sure what Geno Smith is supposed to do on some of these occasions. Like after that key turnover that Trey Brown forced on Odell Beckham Jr. at the end of the first half, everybody's going to be pointing at Geno Smith and saying, you're holding on to the football too long. But it was third and 21 in that last play. What the Seahawks probably should have done is just waved the white flag where they were at field position wise. Shane Waldron should have just done a Mike Holmgren special there and ran a draw or something because they were not probably going to be able to pick up that 21 yards and get a first down, especially with the way that pass rush was getting after Geno Smith. And the sack before that, he had a guy in his face within a split second after the snap. And that happened a ton in this football game. We saw that in the game against the Bengals as well. I have been an advocate for the way Andy Dickerson has coached up this offensive line this year. But 
They had their sixth starting combination in eight games in this contest. There just hasn't been any continuity from that group. And yesterday, they've been able to get by with that. Yesterday, the Baltimore Ravens made them pay. Credit to the Ravens, but I feel like more coming out of this game than what I did yesterday right after the game, watching the film, that this does feel like an instance where, yes, Geno Smith has absolutely got to play better. He is not throwing with the accuracy and the confidence we have seen from him. But at the same time, I don't know that you could have put Patrick Mahomes behind that offensive line yesterday and had much success with the pressure rate being above 50%, the Ravens swarming all over him, getting their hands up, swatting passes. It just felt like a no-win situation for number seven. I agree 100%. I mean, Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, Brett Favre, Dan Marino, I mean, whoever that you would have put behind the offensive line the way that they were absolutely manhandled at the point of attack, uh, yeah, th- those quarterbacks all would have struggled. Now, and, and to your point, I mean, you you uh, pointed out the, the two passes that I would point out as well that really were indictments on Geno Smith's decision-making and his accuracy in this football game. Um, you know, the ugly interception to Geno Stone, uh, the Baltimore Ravens free safety, who can, came into the game with five interceptions and just got a sixth one. And several of the interceptions that he has, if you were to go back and, and watch the highlight reels of Geno Stone's interceptions so far this season, Corbin, half of them essentially look like he's feel uh, like he's doing a fair catch on a punt. I mean, they are just desperation heaves from quarterbacks who are just under amidst pr- among excuse me under immense pressure just because the Baltimore Ravens front is just that darn good and then again the point that you made about the Seahawks having their sixth different starting offensive line group in eight football games I've used the analogy before and I'm going to use it again here this to me is essentially like the Seahawks were on on a drive somewhere with a tire that they know is pretty bald they know has been getting flat and then suddenly they had that tire pop up. And, uh, you know, and unfortunately it kind of caused them to go off to the side of the road and, and drive into the embankment. And you know, I think the Seahawks, frankly, are, are, are very fortunate that Geno Smith or they didn't have any other kind of major injuries along the, the rest of their offensive line at the running back position, um, just because the, the Baltimore Ravens, again, I mean, they just physically dominated Seattle at the point of attack. And that's really where this ball game was, was lost, um, in my opinion. And this was a winnable game going into halftime in my, you know, if the Seahawks have been able to muster anything uh, after that, uh, that, that Trey Brown forced fumble. But the fact that they were not at that point, to me, this felt like a game that was going to get out of hand. And obviously it very much did so. Yeah, this was a lot different than that Rams blood in 2017, where it felt like it was like 40 nothing in the first quarter. This was a game where the Seahawks had chances at the end of the first half to really make this game interesting. And I felt like the team came out deflated to start the second half because of the way things transpired there when they could have got points and instead the Ravens got that extra field goal. They just weren't able to rebound from that and the offense couldn't get anything done. So this was a game where the second half, everything snowballed on the Seahawks. It was a different style blowout, but nonetheless, it's an ugly game that they're going to be wanting to turn the page from. And the offense, they got to figure out what is going on from Geno Smith to the offensive line. Shane Waldron, everybody's got to be looking in the mirror and figuring out how can we get this group to play to its potential. 
after this game. The good news is they don't play the Ravens again. The rest of the season of that defense is absolutely vicious. Coming up next, we're going to tackle your questions on our Monday mailbag. Don't go away. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, which is brought your way by our friends at LinkedIn Jobs. These days, every new potential hire can feel like a high-stakes wager for your small business. You have to make sure you're 100% certain you have access to the best qualified candidates available. That's why you need to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the right people for your team faster and for free. When I was managing a site with the All Seahawks on SI, LinkedIn Jobs might go to to post writing positions to land top candidates. They made the process easy and seamless. All you have to do is create your job post and add your job in the purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word you're hiring. They have simple tools like screening questions that make it super easy to focus on candidates with the right skills and experience so you can quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn jobs helps you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster post your job for free at linkedin.com slash locked on nfl that's linkedin.com slash locked on nfl to post your job for free terms and conditions apply you're listening to the monday edition of locked on seahawks i'm your host corbin smith glad to be joined as always by my co-host in crime rob rang and a special thanks to each and every one of the 12 out there for making locked on seahawks your first listen five days a week we greatly appreciate it don't forget tomorrow uh, this is going to be an interesting tell the truth tuesday coming out of the second worst loss in the pete carroll era i'm sure we'll drop some tidbits on today's show as well but going to be a jam-packed episode and then we're going to turn the page let's start looking at the washington commanders moving forward to a home matchup in week 10 you won't want to miss it it's time for our monday mailbag rob we got tons of questions on x in fact this was a record at the time we kicked off the show live, there were 72 questions on X. Now, some of them were repeats or they were similar topics, but we had to try to narrow it down, and that was certainly difficult. So let's get to the questions. Our first one, speaking of Geno Smith, this coming from Big Iron Mick on X. Geno, over the last 12 games, has 14 touchdowns and 11 interceptions what are the odds the Seahawks decline to pay him $31.2 million next year and choose to cut him, save $13.8 million, and look to start fresh with a rookie and lock as a possible bridge? Well, I'm not real big on, on throwing out numbers here in terms of like a gambling perspective, but I got to say just in a word that they're increasing. Um, you know, I, I think that at this point, it's probably, I think, you know, 30 to 70 um, that the Seahawks would, uh, you know, consider cutting him, decline to, to pay that $31.2 million. The, the Seahawks are kind of up against the salary cap next year anyways, Corbin. We, we've talked about this so much, you know, already that, uh, you know, they have so much money allocated already to the safeties. DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett as well. Uh, Geno Smith with, with that kind of money. And, and frankly, the way that he's played so far this season not just in the loss to, to Baltimore here yesterday but uh this season he is not uh earning that type of money and that's not a astronomical price for a quarterback but it certainly is not playoff caliber worthy money either so uh I, again I think that Geno Smith is unfortunately going to get the brunt of the blame for this Seahawks loss at least from a fan perspective and I don't think that he deserves all of that but at the same time I don't think that he is demonstrating that he is worthy of uh, top 10 quarterback pay if he's not producing top 20 quarterback play. 
Our next question here coming from Mike C from NJ. The overall performance by our guards have been below average. If Bradford is healthy, should he be the starter at right guard or perhaps Curhan gets a chance at right guard? Not sure about left guard. Any ideas? So I will say this coming out of yesterday's game. I feel like compared to his teammates that Phil Haynes was more serviceable than most of the offensive line. I only had him down for giving up one pressure yesterday. Now the one pressure he did give up was immediate, but nonetheless, uh, Stone Forsythe struggled a lot at right tackle. Jason Peters had a really rough game. The few possessions that he was in there, Charles Cross got beat several times. Damian Lewis, I thought, had a rough game. Evan Brown, maybe the roughest game he's had in a Seahawks uniform. He's been really good up to this point. So Phil Haynes was maybe the brightest spot, and that's not saying much coming out of this game of the offensive line, but I'm not sure about whether or not it's time to plug Anthony Bradford in as the full-time starter, but he is on a rookie contract. So maybe the Seahawks decide that that's the ultimate deciding factor there. If he's healthy, they're going to put him back in the lineup. But Phil Haynes has played well this year when he has been in the lineup. They Whatever they do, they got to have continuity. That's the big thing. And Pete Carroll was talking about the rotations last week, and that can be something that you can use. But at the same time, it'd be nice to have more than two games in a row with the same five starters. So whether that's Haynes, whether that's Bradford, Damian Lewis is going to be the guy at left guard on the final year of his rookie deal. He's the starter over there. Whatever they decide to do at right guard, you got to make the decision, hope that guy stays healthy and stick with it so that you can have that continuity. That's the big key there. For me personally, I think Bradford's played well enough that maybe you can make that decision, but Haynes has also done some nice things and he's got experience now. So certainly that is a tough decision, but whatever they do, pick somebody and roll with it and hope that they stay on the field. Next question here coming from Michael Xavier. With the absence of Uchenna Nuosu, it seems like the run defense has started to decline. Any patterns you are starting to notice as to why? Yeah, lack of toughness. Uh, and I think it goes back to the the same thing with the offensive line question that you just took, Corbin, is is that, uh, you know, look, I I have a great deal of respect for Phil Haynes. I really thought that he was a good football player, um, but he does not play with the physicality um, that we've seen from Anthony Bradford. Th there was a reason why the Seahawks ran their very first three plays from the running perspective, running the ball all three times behind the left guard, Damian Lewis, and all three times he got held up at the point of attack, created zero points push from anybody on Seattle's offensive line. Certainly Charles Cross was getting knocked back. As you mentioned, Evan Brown as well. There, there was just zero push from Seattle's offensive line. So to me, it kind of goes back to the China Nuosu conversation that, you know, the, the question that was just posed is that it, Look, I, I have tried to stick up for Daryl Taylor on multiple occasions. I really think that he does have a different level of burst and bend as a pass rusher. But anybody who is watching football, as Pete Carroll would say, it couldn't be more obvious. Uh, you know, Daryl Taylor just is not providing much punch at all in, in terms of the running game. I mean, he just gets folded repeatedly in the running game. This was exactly the worst type of a game um, you know, for him in, in terms of trying to hold up at the point of attack. And Ichan Uwosu is the, you know, the biggest and the toughest, the most physical of Seattle's edge rushers in that regard. So it was this type of a game in which I think the Seahawks missed Uchen Nuosu's physicality. They missed his grit. They missed his heart. They, they missed his just pure toughness at the point of attack more in this game uh, and again the, against the Cleveland Browns two weeks ago as well just because of the type of offense in which they were trying to suit up against our next question coming from T Bailey 1976 
Why does Shane Waldron appear to struggle with game plans and in-game adjustments so much? And why in the world has the O-line, which has gotten healthier, struggled to pass, protect, or open up running lanes the last few weeks? So that last part of the question, I think that it is the fact that there has been so much turnover there, and they're really missing Abraham Lucas at right tackle. That is becoming more and more evident. The good news, and I'll talk more about this later in the show, but it sounds like we finally have a light at the end of the tunnel for getting Abraham Lucas back, which would be huge for this offensive line to have the former third-round pick back in the starting lineup. As for Waldron, I asked Pete Carroll this question today in his weekly Monday press conference. I do wonder if Shane Waldron is a little bit hogtied right now. And, and what I mean by that is that with the offensive line, the state of the musical chairs they played up there and the amount of pressure that Geno Smith was under yesterday, I feel like he is hamstrung in terms of the type of plays that he can call, especially when they end up in third and eight or third and 11 situations. They can't do the deep five-step drops because Geno Smith is going to get dropped immediately by the pass rush. And so I asked Pete Carroll about that, and he acknowledged that they're still they're trying to mix things up, but they've had to be conscious of who they're going up against with the offensive line situation. And so I do think that as a play caller in Shane Waldron's defense, and, and I've thought the offensive line has played pretty well considering circumstances for the most part. They played pretty well against Cleveland. That was not the case yesterday. That really hamstrings you as a play caller when you can't call certain drops, and especially in those third and long situations where you need those longer drops to be able to execute some of those longer developing routes to get that type of yardage, they can't do it right now. So I do think that that is hurting Shane Waldron and the Seahawks offense in his defense, and that has hurt the game plan adjustments because if you have a big chunk of the playbook that isn't even available to you or you're not confident to run it because of your offensive line, uh, that just really puts you behind the eight ball. So I think that partially explains what we are seeing in terms of inconsistency and not being able to get this offense jump-started, particularly getting those second and third and long situations they're consistently facing right now. No, and our last question for Rob here coming from Mike Chait. Seattle has been below average in third down conversion percentage and opponent third down conversion percentage since 2019. Is it a lack of talent or scheme coaching or both? Um, I think it is a little bit of both. I think first from the offensive side of the ball, because we've been focusing so much on that. So I'll address that first. I think that, you know, Again, right now, Seattle's inability to stay healthy and have any kind of continuity on the offensive line, I think, is, as you said, Corbin, is really tying Shane Waldron's hands behind his back. There's just such a – he only has a, a small number of plays in which he can can call, really. I mean, it, it's – all the analytics that are out there, I, I think that one of the easiest ones that you could do is just get yourself a stopwatch and just time how uh, how quickly that Geno Smith has to make a decision with the football before he is getting hit. Um, and, and if you compare that to, say, the Kansas City Chiefs with the Patrick Mahomes or whatever team that you want, um, then I think that you're going to see just how much quicker um, that Geno Smith is being forced to move the ball. And so, therefore, there's going to be an awful lot of 
times where it is going to be third and long. There's going to be some struggles, and and Seattle is not going to be able to convert on offense. From the defensive side of the ball, there's of course been a lot of inconsistency. You know, this year Seattle's running defense has been spectacular up until this this past game. Um, but previously they've been the exact opposite. It had been they've been very good against the pass, but not against the run. The year where they were very good against the run, not very good against the pass. And I think part of that is because you're seeing more and more NFL offenses out there who are just looking to get the ball out of their hands out of the quarterback's hands so very quickly. And Pete Carroll talked about that uh, a little bit, that that is not what the Seahawks want to do. They want to take their shots. They want to run the ball, and then they want to throw it deep uh, rather than um, you know just kind of dink and dunk their way down the field. I think that a lot of other NFL teams are choosing to do it the other way. You know, Pete Carroll is a guy whose playoff uh, you know success, the, the fact that the Seahawks have been in playoff contention for, you know, what is it, 11 or 12 of his 13 years or whatever the case might be. I mean, it speaks for itself. But I definitely think that some of it is the talent. Some of it is that the, the, the Seahawks are kind of playing it to what they feel like is the best way to actually win football games. And that does not necessarily translate to statistics uh, in, in terms of third down conversion or third down defense. Coming up next, we're going to dish out our Monday musings, easily the most miserable Monday that we've had in a long time, looking at yesterday's butt whooping at the hands of the Baltimore Ravens. Don't go away. You're listening to the Monday edition of Locked on Seahawks, which is brought your way by FanDuel. We're wrapping up week nine in the NFL with incredible offers from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 money line bet. That's a hundred and fifty bucks. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to get in on the action. The app is so easy to use. There's a wide range of betting options, including taking a look at the first spread numbers that come out for the Seahawks against the Commanders in Week Ten, player props, including Rookie of the Year, MVP, and much more, over unders, and more. So visit FanDuel.com/lockedon and enjoy the NFL season with an offer you won't want to miss. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. You're listening to the Monday edition of Locked on Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined, as always, by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. Any special thanks to all the 12s out there. Thank you, thank you, thank you for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. This is clearly going to be the most miserable Monday, maybe the most miserable Monday that we have had in Locked on Seahawks history because we weren't doing this show in 2017 when the Rams beat down on the Seahawks 42-7 to at then still named Century Lake Field, but the second largest defeat happened yesterday in Baltimore, a 37 to 3 thrashing at the hands of Lamar Jackson and a vicious Ravens run game and defense. So looking at this game, I guess we could maybe say from a bright side that when you get beat that bad, you know it's it's a little easier to just turn the page because you know that it was an ugly game. And at the same time, as you mentioned early in the show, Rob. For a half, I know that the Ravens were up 14 and a half, but before they got that last field goal, there were opportunities there for the Seahawks to make this a game, and they just couldn't capitalize on it. And I know that you have some interesting thoughts coming out of that game from a personnel and coaching standpoint. 
Well, I think for for one, to me, this is an easy game just to, as you said, just to kind of turn the page. I would say a more apt description is just to kind of flush it, um, just because that's really what that, you know, that, that game looked like, I think. This game a, was a giant turd, so it fits yeah. the uh, equation. But <laughs> Exactly. And, and, but I think it's an easier one to flush. And for me, at least, it is. You know, I would much rather lose a game by 30, um, where I feel like the, the basically what happened is you just got out physical at the point of attack then losing to me a more difficult game would be like a, a three-point loss at, at the buzzer kind of a thing um you know because to me what that says is that you were so close to winning that game and of course the seahawks were not at all close to winning this guy you know this laugher of a football game and that it, to me is one of the interesting things about this game i, I my Monday musings, the way I put it, was that I thought that this was a varsity versus JV type of a football game. Baltimore was bigger. They were more physical. They were faster. They were better in their, uh, you know, just in their alignment and in their communication. Now, a, a big part of it is the fact that they were a home. I would be curious to see the Baltimore Ravens on the road, um, you know, and, and see how much more effective that they are or how much less effective, excuse me, that they are. And we, we talked about the fact that the Seahawks, you know, were had some of the same kind of issues but they were at home when they beat the cleveland browns um and, and so that to me again is, is a big part of that because that fearsome defense of the ravens is just going to be that much more amplified with that crowd noise the running game is going to be that much better um you know with their ability to kind of come off the line of scrimmage on their own snap rather than just kind of making side adjustments at the line of scrimmage the way the Seahawks were forced to do. It really did, uh, in my opinion, make this a, a fairly predictable loss for the Seahawks. I just certainly wasn't expecting it to become the ugly blowout that it became. But again, it wasn't anything that exotic from the Ravens that I think that contributed most to this game. It's just that the Seahawks were not as physical as the Baltimore Ravens were, and usually that's what winds up happening is the less physical team winds up getting that loss. Speaking of losses, Seattle has been missing Abraham Lucas at right tackle since week one when he exited early in the third quarter with what Pete Carroll had termed an old knee. And that always scares me because he said it wasn't an injury. So you're wondering what is going on there. He gets an injection of some sort. And I think a lot of people anticipated if this works out that, you know, four weeks minimum, you have to be an injured reserve. Maybe we get him back shortly after that. And here we are. He's missed seven games. And last week, Pete Carroll's update was pretty ominous on his condition, said he was still dealing with discomfort. But today, Carroll was very excited to tell reporters that the Seahawks are hopeful that Abraham Lucas will be back at practice next week. And there is even a sliver of possibility he could return to practice this week, though it seems like that's more of a long shot. Carroll did not downplay the possibility that that could happen. So, they're hoping to get Abraham Lucas back here quickly. Now, how long is it going to be till he's back in game action? Who knows? This might be an instance where he's going to need a couple weeks back in the practice field before he's ready to play in a game. But nonetheless, any good news here is a big positive for the Seahawks with all the issues they've had with their offensive line. So for me, this is pretty simple. When you give up a 54% pressure rate like they did yesterday, Abe Lucas's return couldn't possibly come any sooner for this football team and I'm not just talking about a pass protection standpoint too Rob Abe Lucas last year was way better in the run blocking department than I anticipated coming from a run and shoot offense at Washington State and he plays with some of that physicality and toughness that it feels like this football team is sorely lacking 
right now in the trenches with their offensive line. I think his attitude and some of that nastiness that he brings out there, that heavy metal listener attitude that he brings to the football field, they need that right now. They need an injection of that that energy, that orneriness in the trenches right now. So this is a huge development, and hopefully it ends up coming to fruition. I'd love to see him back this week, but getting him on the practice field by next week, getting him ready to play, have him back for the first 49ers game, that would be a perfect scenario to have him there so he can try to win the NFC West. Yeah, I think that that would be huge news if the Seahawks were able to get Abe Lucas back. Because I think, as you articulated, he just brings a different level of, of physicality and, and a finishing mentality that that frankly is is lacking with the Seahawks. I think it's also um, you know kind of a statement a little bit to to Stone Forsythe to Jason Pierce, like, hey. You know, the right tackle play right now is just not where it needs to be. And so if Abe Lucas comes back, he is going to be taking that job from you. Um, so I think it's kind of a shot of the bow across the bow to those two incumbent starters who have been kind of trying to manage that position. And it's funny. That's a perfect segue to, to my second point here that, you know, as we talked about, Gina Smith had the one interception in this football game, but he had three passes bad at the line of scrimmage. Some would argue that that, uh, that missed throw to DK Metcalf in the end zone, as you said, that kind of, you know, skipped in there um, for a potential touchdown. The only time the Seahawks were even close to striking distance for an actual touchdown, that that pass may have been either deflected or at least Gina Smith was hampered in that particular throw. The point is, is I, I'm as concerned about uh, Geno Smith's passes getting batted down at the line of scrimmage, frankly, as I am about the, the moonshot interception that he threw to Geno Stone there, um, just because of the fact that what that suggests to me is, number one, your offensive line is getting pushed right into his face. That, that goes without saying. Everybody who watched that game knows that the Baltimore Ravens front absolutely dominates Seattle up front. It's also saying that Geno Smith is staring down his primary receivers, um, and and so that, therefore, the defensive line is able to kind of see when he is going to throw the football. They're getting their hands up. Now, the former offensive line coach in me, one of the things that we used to coach our offensive linemen do is when the defensive linemen got their hands up, then you punch them in the belly so damn hard that they're looking for a liver transplant at the end of that game. But that's the thing is that the, the Ravens were able to kind of just put their hands up. Not They weren't keeping their hands up the entire time. They were tracked. They were watching Geno Smith's eyes and getting their hands up at exactly the right time. And if it was just one guy doing it, Jay Van kind of got the first one. Michael Pierce got a second one. Of course, it's only a couple of day, a couple a game ago that uh, you know Maurice Hurst, the Cleveland Browns, got the interception. They tipped to himself and made a terrific pick. I mean, but this is becoming a significant problem, a day in day out kind of problem with Geno Smith. So to me, that is something that absolutely needs to get fixed, or you're going to see more turnovers going to be generated by exactly this type of play. And a credit to the Ravens, you mentioned their pass rushers were doing a good job of getting their hands up late. It's kind of like with a receiver. We saw DK Metcalf, the touchdown against the Giants, where he didn't show his hands until the last second, and it put the defender in coverage in a bind. Same thing here with the pass rushers, so they're well taught. If you've seen the size of some of those men, like Michael Pierce, I don't know that you can hit them hard enough to make their liver hurt because those are massive human beings. But nonetheless... For me, I got to go back to a, a theme that unfortunately keeps cropping up. And we mentioned Lieutenant Nuosu earlier. You answered that question. But even Boye Mafe a few times yesterday ended up out of position 
against Baltimore's run game. And I'm not going to put all that on him because the Ravens, when you have to deal with a quarterback like Lamar Jackson, it really does complicate your run fits with his ability to run the football, just the threat that he is. I think he's the best running quarterback that has ever played in the NFL. And no offense to Michael Vick. Michael Vick was incredible. But Lamar Jackson, he's just on another level. He is a video game out there at quarterback. And that is always in the back of the minds of pass rushers and run defenders when you're dealing with this football team. So that was an issue. But then Daryl Taylor, I mentioned this yesterday. I'm going to say it again. On the first Gus Edwards touchdown run, I think that he got blocked into Washington, D.C. by the end of that play. And you can't have that happen. Derek Hall had a couple really nice run plays, then he banged up his shoulder at the end of the game. So I'm hoping he's okay because Taylor and Frank Clark, I'll give him a little bit of a pass because he's still only been back with the team now for two games and he got thrown into the fire. But when you're playing a team like the Ravens, you cannot have him and Daryl Taylor both on the field at the same time. You have charm and soft edges out there and the Ravens exploited it. They ran for almost 300 yards and yes, missed tackles were a huge problem, but also those, those edges off tackle, they were just owning that the entire second half of the game. No contain, no hard edge setting. And so this is a real problem without Uchenna Nuosu. Pete Carroll tried to downplay it a little bit today, as I expected he was going to. But this is an issue. And maybe they look at somebody like a Levi Bell. They need to try something to get somebody out there that is going to bring them some physicality, that is going to set the edge. I think Mafe's done a fine job all season. But... Uh, they've got some issues there that they absolutely have got to get figured out. Oh, they they really do. Um, and as you said, I mean, Daryl Taylor, I, I, I mean, it was a, a double team block and he was pushed into the end zone. And I think that the, the Ravens started that ball, uh, started the, that play, of, I believe, at the six yard line on that particular run. And the second uh, touchdown run, um, you know, that it was Leonard Williams and Bobby Wagner who were knocked onto their backsides. You know, so it, this wasn't just the, the, the Ravens controlling the Seahawks on the edges. The, the Ravens controlled the Seahawks all along the line of scrimmage. Now, I don't want to just focus so much on the negatives. And obviously, there are plenty of negatives that we could be talking about. But I, I wanted to focus in on, on some positives from this play as well. You mentioned Boye Mafe. And while it was, uh, you know, just like you said, almost like a video game with the way that Lamar Jackson was able to feel that rush from Boye Mafe on the one incredible run in which Lamar Jackson just showed off his burst, it was a terrific pass rush that Boye Mafe got a little bit of revenge a couple of plays later when. And he, uh, you know, created that forced fumble. I mean, that was just a beautiful speed rush to the outside. The hand placement to be able to knock the ball out of Lamar Jackson's hands. Not only, of course, did he force the fumble, but Boye Mafe recovered the fumble. The, uh, terrific play. The, the single most impressive play I saw from the Seahawks at any level of their defense or offense uh, or, or special teams, really, uh, you know, in, in that game against the the, the the Ravens. And then Trey Brown, I thought that was a terrific forced fumble as well. I mean, just the, the that never stay die type of resiliency that frankly I thought that the Seahawks were lacking in so many other ways to be able to punch the ball out the way that he did to sense that Odell Beckham was not yet down that he had not gotten a knee or or an elbow or anything else down and to still just be kind of scrapping and claw at the ball I mean big play Trey kind of continued to have that nickname really put Seattle in a position to make this a bit of a football game so to me those are two definite positives from this game I think the Seahawks can at least kind of hang their hat on usually if you can be competitive in the turnover game, then you give yourself a chance. Just unfortunately, the Seahawks dropped the ball in every other way uh, against the Ravens on Sunday. 
Yeah, I'll let you have some of the positives. I, I just can't be positive coming out of this game. I mean, it, and, and that takes a lot because I'm generally a pretty positive person. But, like, that would be the only thing that I could say that was positive coming out of this game. And yesterday I mentioned it, Jackson Smith and Jigba, I thought, second half, he gave the Seahawks a little bit of a spark. and But still, he had the bobble drop at the beginning of the game, which I think kind of set the tone for how the rest of the game was going to go, unfortunately. It was, it was that kind of a game. And so unfortunately I cannot finish off with a positive and I have been an ardent supporter of Draymond Jones this entire season. I think he's been more disruptive than what his numbers show in the first seven games. That was not the case in this game. And when you're paying a guy 50 plus million dollars over a three-year contract, he's the biggest free agent signing that Seattle had since 2011. You're expecting him to be a difference maker he was spending more time on the ground yesterday, and it wasn't because he was making tackles. The, the Ravens were manhandling him. They double-teamed him a lot. The 40, uh, the 42-yard run by Edwards, there were so many big runs, I'm mixing them up. But the 42-yard run by Gus Edwards to open the second half, the Ravens put him on skates with a double-team, and they created a semi-sized hole there. And that allowed Gus Edwards to make a couple guys miss. He broke a couple tackles and suddenly he's rumbling 42 yards and the Ravens are in business. They go get another field goal and the route is on in this football game. They need more from Draymond Jones. The only notable play that I can remember that was decent was chasing down Lamar Jackson. And that was still a five yard gain on a run play. So he's just, they need more. They need him to elevate his game and play like he's capable of. There's been flashes, but the consistency has not been there. You need your big money free agent to start playing like a big money free agent, both defending the run and getting after the passer. We're just not seeing enough of that on the field, the impact plays. So they need to get that figured out. And I think that would be a big thing to get this run defense back rolling. They need him to play at a higher level moving forward. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Subscribe and follow Locked on Seahawks on YouTube and wherever you get your podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode coming up tomorrow is tell the truth Tuesday, probably going to be plenty of negatives and then we'll move forward. We will flush this game. As Rob said, we'll move on and start talking about the Washington commanders coming to Lumen field in week 10. It's going to be a loaded Tuesday episode. Make sure you're listening in. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of your Monday and go Hawks.